is take each different category, life, stem cell, adoption, family, marriage, uh, re- uh, reparative therapy, discrimination, pornography, religion, education, health care, drugs, government, judiciary, elections, defense, Israel, firearms, and climate change. And they have taken it and they have put the statements from the Democrat Texas Democrat Party platform in in uh, in blue and the statement on that topic from the Republican uh, state party platform in red. So this is very informative. Everything in here is just taking the statement straight out of each party's platform and putting those uh, uh, next to each other for comparison purposes. And I just put some of these out on the table out in the uh, fellowship hall here. I think that... Pretty much covers it. Jeff Phipps came through here a few minutes ago, I understand, getting some things. He is leaving tonight to go to Brazil. Uh, there he will connect with Jim Myers and a couple of others with DM2, and they're going to be uh, teaching and ministering down there for the next week or so. So uh, please keep them in prayer. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful for all that you've provided for us. Father, this congregation stands for the truth of your word, and we seek to faithfully teach it and also to apply it as well as to explain the gospel to those who come into our periphery. And that's really our mission is primarily evangelism and secondly, education of those who are, who are believers. Father, we pray that you might uh, help us to focus more consistently in our own lives on opportunities to communicate the gospel to those around us for ultimately the only hope for this nation comes through the gospel and a return to biblical values. Father, we pray for this election that is uh, began today, at least in Texas, for early voting. We pray that uh, that you will provide good leaders for this nation as a result of this election, and we can turn back the tide that has been sliding in the wrong direction for so long, and that we can have some strong leaders who can focus, can lead, and can direct this nation in a way that will restore stability and financial uh, Uh, financial prosperity to this nation. We know that can only happen on the basis of your word. And, Father, we pray for Jeff, for Jim, for others who are involved with this DM2 uh, ministry down in Brazil over the next week or so. We pray for opportunities for them 
to make the gospel clear, to teach your word well, and we pray that you would keep them healthy, that they would be strong, that they would be rested, and that you would watch over them. And, Father, we just uh, pray for us tonight that we would be responsive to the teaching of your word, understanding more clearly your plans and purposes and the destiny for each of us as we continue our study in dispensations in your plan for the ages. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, tonight we are coming to the end. What, what is not happening here? Did I not turn these on? No, I turned them on. Okay, there we go. Finally, we have. I have updated to the new Mac operating system, so who knows what will suddenly happen? That did that go off? I may have hit the I hit the button once. Let's see if the other screen comes on. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to start working through what the Scripture teaches about the Millennial Kingdom. Did you turn that off? Well, it's, oh, okay, because oh, okay. All right, we're looking at the millennial kingdom, and just to give us a framework, we've looked at the church age, which ends with the rapture, then there is a transition period before the beginning of the tribulation. Tribulation lasts for seven years, begins with the signing of a treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, and ends with the second coming of Christ rescuing Israel from a total destruction, destroying the Antichrist and sending the Antichrist and the false prophet directly to the lake of fire, and also uh, confining Satan and the demons to the abyss uh, during for the duration of the thousand years of his reign uh, on, on on the earth. So this is what our focus is, is on this kingdom. Now, this is really important to understand. How we view the future impacts how we understand the present. How we view the future in terms of God's plan and purpose impacts our understanding of the spiritual life today, where we're going in our spiritual life, why it's important to live our spiritual life in and to persevere in obedience, what God is doing in us in preparing us for our future destiny to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. The end of the tribulation is the sort of the culmination of God's judgment upon the angels and mankind for their rebellion against him. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, we enter into a, a new environment. It's not an environment of perfection as we have in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, but it is a, 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 an environment where the curse of sin has rolled back to some degree. For example, in the passages that we've studied before, the uh, uh, wolf will lie down with, with the lamb, the child will put his hand into a cobra's den, and it will be a time when men will beat their uh, 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 swords and spears into pruning hooks and plowshares, and man will learn war no more. 
So it will be a time of uh, relative utopia. There will still be sinful men. One of the lessons that we see for the millennial kingdom is that even though it's perfect environment, we have perfect rule, perfect government, perfect education. We have an administration that is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ and administered by the resurrected uh, saints of, from the Old Testament for Israel and from church age believers over the, uh, over the Gentiles that nevertheless there will be problems because the people who are born during the millennial kingdom still have a sin nature. So one of the things that's pointed out in the millennial kingdom is that the real problem isn't our environment. It's not the government. It's not politics. It's not the education system. It is, it is the sin nature. It is that we are all basically flawed. And unless we're walking in obedience to the Lord, there's really no, no solution. And right now we're in the midst of the political season, especially with the election that comes up in two weeks. Uh, early voting started today. I hope you are yesterday. I hope you have all voted early and it's already over with. But that is what we need to do to be involved. But it's not the ultimate solution. It is simply part of our responsibility and obligation as uh, believers during this age. Let's see if we can get that other can- uh, projector going. So we're looking at the... Millennial Kingdom and its role and purpose. Now, among Christians, we know that not all Christians, not all Bible-believing Christians believe in a literal future reign of Christ. This last week, I got an, uh, received an email from George Meisinger that came from a retired brigadier general who's got some background in biblical truth and, and doctrine who is going to a Presbyterian church that raises all kinds of questions, because Presbyterians usually don't believe in a literal millennium. But he teaches a Sunday school class, and so he wanted material from Chafer Seminary on the millennium because he was going to be teaching on the millennium in Sunday school. And so George, I mean, George wanted to get a hold of some material uh, that um, via this program that Tom Wright has put together and so he emailed me and wanted to know how to get a hold of Tom and all of that. And, and Tom was able to put, put together some material to send to this retired general uh, to teach in this, this Bible class. So this may not be the kind of thing that, that where you are running into an issue in your experience of, of why this is important. But it is. It also plays a role in how some Christians view politics today. There's a group of Christians known as Christian Reconstructionists. They do not hold to a future literal millennium uh, as a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. They are generally post-millennial, and they believe that the church is going to eventually have revival from the Holy Spirit and that the, through this revival that the millennium will be brought in and Jesus doesn't return until the end of the millennial kingdom. And so that's their focus. And these folks are very much involved in a lot of education. They have been working for 40 years and producing a lot of homeschool material. And you, if you are, your children are homeschoolers, it is very likely that a lot of the material that they're using that teaches history and teaches politics 
is produced by people who are coming out of this Christian Reconstructionist post-millennial background. That doesn't mean the material is bad, but it means that if you're teaching this through a lot of this curriculum, you need to have your radar on because this will show up at different times within the uh, within the curriculum. They're also virulently anti-dispensational, and they just, you know, to listen to them, the next worst thing in history to the Antichrist is John Nelson Darby, who was uh, the, the theologian who systematized dispensational theology. So uh, there have been several... Uh, debates that have taken place between people like Tommy Ice, Dave Hunt, at one time back in the uh, 1980s, uh, there was a major debate that took place in the Dallas area between them and then between uh, Gary DeMar and um, I forget who the other one was on the Reconstructionist side, but they had a huge debate. But this impacts politics. Now, why would I bring that up? Well, and I don't know, I'm not going to be able to tie all the not, all the dots together on this, but one of the one of the ministries that's that's post millennial just this last week or a little over a week ago, when this issue with the Houston mayor came out, one of their writers uh, put out an article, an editorial, an email, and his position was diametrically opposed to what I explained last week. In fact, some of what I said was directed towards correcting this notion. He had not done his homework, and he was saying this is this is not you know, the conservatives are making a much bigger deal out about uh, of this. And I'm not sure how this connects to his post millennialism, but I do know that Charlie Clough uh, replied in a very uh, uh, well informed email, straightening this individual out. So that's I'm just saying this that this issue related to the future kingdom of Christ on the earth is an important issue and does play an important role within uh, a lot of political discussion, how you view history and how you view what's going on in the here and now, because how you view today is often shaped and shaded by how you view the future. Now, when we look at Scripture, and we understand Scripture on the basis of a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation, it's pretty clear that the Bible presents the kingdom of, the, of Israel, the kingdom of Christ, as a literal, earthly, geopolitical kingdom. In the announcement of Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel informs Mary that she's going to conceive, she's going to give birth to a son, who will be great, and in Luke 132, uh, Gabriel says he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, when you read that, you think that this is an earthly throne, that this has to do with David's literal throne where he ruled from Jerusalem. You don't think that this is some spiritual throne up in the heavens. So literal interpretation, the way you would normally read this, is this is a literal throne on the earth. In the next verse, Gabriel goes on to say, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so again, we take this as a literal physical kingdom. Mary doesn't ask him, say, what do you mean this kingdom? What do you mean the throne of David? 
she understands exactly what the what the angel is announcing because she has read her her Hebrew scripture and she understands the, exactly what he's talking about. That's the frame of reference. We've studied this in our study in Matthew that when John the Baptist and Jesus showed up on the scene saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, people didn't go, well, wait a minute, we haven't heard about this kingdom. What do you mean? They were very clear on the concept from what they had already learned from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as we'll see, there's this presentation of a future literal kingdom. Now, the word millennium that we use is uh, one of those words that is um, uh, that is based in Latin. It's a word that means a thousand. It's taken from the Latin word milli, which means a thousand. And theologically, it's used to refer to the thousand-year reign of Christ based on the text of Romans, I mean, of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. It's very clear in the Greek, the word for thousand is used five times. It's almost as if God is saying, hello, pay attention, it's a thousand years. Five times in six verses or seven verses, he says, it's a thousand years. And so it's it's very clear for when people come along, well, wait a minute, it's not really a thousand years. So milli is a Latin word for a thousand. In Greek, the word for a thousand is kilioi. And in the early church, they were called kiliests. That is, those who believed in a literal thousand-year kingdom, a literal future thousand-year kingdom, were called kiliests. We call them premillennialists, that they believe that Jesus will return pre or before the the millennial kingdom. Now, how do we know that this this is literal? Because that's the battle, whether or not this is a literal thousand-year reign on from a literal throne uh, in literal Jerusalem. First of all, uh, we understand from our study of Revelation that symbols in Revelation are all either defined in Revelation or they're elsewhere in the Scriptures. See, what happens is the other side, those who don't agree with us, would say, well, uh, this isn't to be taken literally. A thousand is just a symbol for a long time or a period of perfection. It is not to be taken literally as a specific number. The answer to that is that these symbols in Revelation always speak of something that is literal, and they are defined as something literal. Even though you have uh, the woman who rides the beast, she represents some, a literal geopolitical kingdom. Second thing we notice is that the term a thousand is used six times in this passage, six times in this passage, which indicates that this means something, that God is trying to get the point across. Third, we see that there are other numerical terms such as 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years that are viewed as literal in the book of Revelation. In fact, when we look at Revelation chapter 7, we're told that there will be uh, 144,000 selected from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then John says it will be 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. twelve, And he goes through the whole list of each tribe and lists all 12 tribes and says there will be 12,000 from each one. 
he really is driving home the point that those numbers should be taken literally, not 100,000, not the 12,000, just some sort of ideal number, but that each one of those 12 tribes will have 12,000 selected who are sealed for a specific mission during the tribulation period. So since the other numbers in the book of Revelation are presented as numbers we should take literally, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, the, the number 1,000 should be taken as, as, symbolic, uh, as, as symbolic and as literal. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, excuse me, it should not be taken as symbolic. It should be taken as literal. Fourth, the basis for the belief in the millennium is on Old Testament prophecies. The only thing that we have that states the length of time for the kingdom is a thousand years is the Revelation 20 passage. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens of passages in the Old Testament that predict a future literal geopolitical kingdom on the earth based in Jerusalem where the Messiah reigns over the earth from Jerusalem. So as we look at the uh, at the verse, let's just walk through it just a little bit. Revelation 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The bottomless pit is the abyss. Remember when we were studying in, in uh, Matthew just a, two or three weeks ago, and we studied the episode where Jesus cast the demons out of the, the uh, two Gadarene demoniacs. And they're questioning him, are you here already? Are you going to send us into the abyss? And the fact that they're asking that shows that they understand that the next thing that's going to happen to them judgment-wise is that they would be confined to the abyss. This is where Satan will be confined. And even though Satan's the only one that's mentioned in Revelation 20, based on the fact that in all the Gospels they all record this conversation that Jesus has with that Gadarene demoniac, and that's their concern, is are we going to be go, going into the abyss now? So that is clearly their destiny. So some, somebody asked me this not long ago and, and uh, was wondering if just Satan or Satan and the demons were confined. And at that time I didn't click to what was being said in the with the Gadarene demoniac conversation, but having gone through it, I think that's exactly what happens, is that Satan and all of the fallen angels that have followed him are confined in the abyss until they are released at the end of that thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 2, He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then in verse 4 we read, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on the forehead, and they are on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Revelation 20, verse 6, he shall reign with them a thousand uh, a thousand years. So those are the, I, I think I had a typo there, six years. It's five times that it is mentioned in this passage, five times. So now when we read that, how many people here think that a thousand years just means a long time? It's not to be taken literally. 
I mean, if you just look at the terminology, it would be that way. But you have a large group of people who come along and say that this is not to be taken literally. They are what is known as amillennialists, which is kind of an odd word in terms of its creation because that prefix a is a, the, comes from Greek. Milli comes from what language? Latin. Latin. The alpha privative is what it's called, comes from Greek. So you take a Greek prefix, which basically means not. It's like the English prefix un. And you take a Greek prefix and attach it to a Latin word. So somebody just made it up. It's a, it's a strange little word. So it's called amillennialism, which means no millennium, no thousand-year earthly kingdom. And for these folks, they believe that the, uh, that a thousand is merely a symbolic, uh, number. Now the chart here shows how they view the kingdom. They view us as being in the kingdom right now. Now when you look at those descriptions of the kingdom where the wolf and the lamb lie down together and the child puts his hand in the cobra's den and people are beating their, their, uh, spears and their swords into, uh, pruning shears and plowshares, it's, it's pretty obvious that if this is the, the millennial kingdom in any way, shape, or form, something's really, really wrong. Unless, of course, you're an idealist and you really believe in the UN because that verse from Isaiah chapter 2 that talks about beating your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks is, is carved over the entry of the United Nations building. Now, that verse is talking about the, the real genuine military peace that the uh, Messiah will bring to the, to the world. But if you're a utopic liberal, and I repeat myself, if you are a liberal, and all liberals are utopic, that's essential. They don't believe that people are essentially bad. Then you really believe you, that mankind and government can improve the earth and bring in the kingdom. That's, that idea is very close to the postmodern, I mean the postmillennial idea. There's a liberal and a conservative view of postmillennialism, which we'll get to a little later on, but the liberal view of postmillennialism was that from the 19th century was that we were getting better and better in every way and that we could bring in, in world peace. And, and that was destroyed on the fields of Flanders in World War I. World War I was such a horrible, bloody, violent, vicious war that it destroyed all of that optimism. So much so that, that theologians wrote that, that post-millennialism was dead after that. But it's reared its head again, but from a conservative viewpoint. So amillennialism is a view there's no literal, uh, Kingdom, and what they have is a spiritual kingdom, and that's this blue shaded box here that Christ is reigning from his throne now in heaven. And that is, runs coterminous or runs at the same time as the church age. So according to them, we're in the kingdom. Jesus is ruling. The kingdom is in your heart. And Jesus is ruling from heaven. And so they view the first resurrection uh, that Revelation talks about is being spiritual. That's what happens when you trusted Christ. You were resurrected. You went from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. So that they, they don't interpret Scripture literally. Then at the end, sometime in the future, 
Jesus is going to return to the earth. They have no rapture, nothing like that at all. Jesus just returns to the earth, and this is the second second resurrection, and all judgment will take place at that point, and then we just go into eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. That is basically the amillennial position. So they see us living in the kingdom right now, but it's not a literal earthly political kingdom. For them, because they don't believe in literal interpretation, Zion, which used to refer to Israel, Mount Zion, that Mount Zion has sort of shifted its reference a few times. Mount Zion originally referred to the old city of David, which is just south of the Temple Mount. Now it refers to the mountain just to the, just to the west of the old city of David. And generally it's applied to Jerusalem as a synonym sometimes or to all of Israel. But in, in the Old Testament, it always refers to the Jewish focus, the, and especially a Jerusalem focus in God's plan. But for amillennialists, Zion no longer means Israel or anything related to literal physical Israel. It refers to the church. And uh, they make no clear distinction between Israel and the church, that Israel is the church in the Old Testament and the church is Israel in the New Testament that Israel is no longer a term that refers to those who are physically, biologically related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's their uh, non-literal interpretation that shows up. So they don't make a distinction between Israel and the church, and so we are in the kingdom now, and we are the kingdom, and God no longer has a plan or purpose for Israel. They also teach that if, if these passages like Revelation 20 teach that that Satan is going to be confined for the during this this thousand years. If we're in that thousand years, and this is just a symbolic number, then Satan is bound right now. Satan is not alive and well on planet Earth, is how Lindsay termed it in the uh, in the title of his book. So they they believe that that Satan is bound right now. But their concept of being bound just means that he's not quite as powerful as he was before. He, they, they change the meaning of, of the word bind. So as we see, amillennialism changes the, or spiritualizes the plain meaning of scripture. Now what's interesting is amillennialism is somewhat related to postmillennialism because both of these views have their origin in covenant theology and Calvinism. Now before you really go too far with that, a lot of premillennialism has its origin in, in a Calvinistic framework as well. So, but, but within the, but not the covenant uh, aspect of, of uh, Calvinism. So postmillennialism, emphasizing that word post, means that Jesus comes back at the end of the millennium. He returns after the millennial kingdom. So that means that they view, even though they see that life may even get much, much worse on this planet, that eventually, as God the Holy Spirit works in the human race, the church will emerge victorious. They're very optimistic. In fact, they will refer to us as pessimillennialists because we see things just getting worse and worse until the tribulation, and how much worse could it get than the tribulation? So you guys are just a bunch of pessimists, and they're optimists. They're optimillennialists. So 
they believe in a utopic view that somehow the Holy Spirit is going to work and improve culture and improve society. That's why these guys are producing so many, in some cases, really good works on the law from the Old Testament, on a biblical view of society and culture and politics and law. And these guys produce some great works on uh, American history, and that's because they believe that this will become a model pattern for this future improvement that comes biblically. And I, we have to be careful. These conservative post-millennialists try to be biblical, but they still have a non-literal interpretation. But they do produce some good material related to history and culture and and law. It's just that the framework within which they put that uh, has to do with this this utopia. They do view a future utopia that the church will bring this in, bring in the kingdom, and bring in world peace, but it's not the liberal view of it, but it's still the same idea. And then it's not until all this gets brought in by the church, and then Jesus will, Jesus will return. So for them, the church age is not identical with the, with the kingdom. The kingdom gradually comes in at the, towards the end of the church age, and they would probably say that we're somewhere in this area right here in the middle of this graph and not towards the end of it. So they see a continual progress. Now, I don't know about that. I don't see much of a progress over the last 2,000 years, but they do. So like the Amel, they see first the first resurrection is spiritual at conversion, and then the second second coming will be when there's the second resurrection and then all judgment takes place and then into eternity. So there's a lot of similarities. What's interesting is is as a baby boomer, I recognize that the baby boom generation, and that's a technical term, it refers to everybody born from January 6th, 1946, or January 7th, right in there, because that's exactly nine months after the end of the war in Europe. And if you look at the demographics on, on births, those on January the 6th, it goes like this. I mean, it just takes this leap because everybody got really excited and celebrated when the war in Europe ended and made a lot of babies. And that's why it's called the baby boom. And that graph goes sky high and stays sky high until 1963, and then it drops like a rock. And so all those who are born between about January, I forget whether it's January 6th, January 7th, 1946, until 1963 are considered baby boomers. And baby boomers were characterized by a lot of different things, but one of them is were characterized by a lack of respect for authority, generally speaking, that they were a rebellious generation. But when you go to seminary, you're really restricted in how you can manifest your rebellion. Now, if you went to Dallas Seminary, one of the ways you would manifest rebellion during the time that I was there is that you would become a hyper-Calvinist and you would become, you would throw away your dispensationalism and you would become, uh, you would go covenant or go amel. If you were at Westminster Seminary, which was sort of the, the Calvinist counterpart to Dallas Seminary, then you would throw away your amillennialism and you went post-mill. And that's sort of the time when post-millennialism was reborn and everything 
uh, grew very rapidly in the influence of people like Rusus Rushduni and Gary North and uh, a number of the others really began to, to grow and, and, and take root. So that's just a little bit of a, of a historical perspective. So this picture is post-millennialism. Prior, I remember when I first went to seminary, you hardly heard, heard the term post-millennialism. In fact, there was a book written by this guy, Lorraine Bettner, who is a post-millennialist. And I remember Randy Price saying, now you need to get this book because it's the only book in print on post-millennialism. And he, he recommended Bettner's book. And this is what Lorraine Bettner says in that book. The view of last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. They don't view this as a political in crusade. They're not trying to do it through politics. Some people have misrepresented him that way because Christian reconstructionists tend to be very involved politically. But they don't see that, that politics is a way to bring in the kingdom. I just need to make that clear so it's not, not misrepresented. Uh, the idea of postmillennialism has uh, a, quite a history back at the turn of the last millennium, not long after that. There was a huge fervor of, of eschatological expectation when they were approaching that first millennium. You think Y2K stirred up a lot of excitement. Well, when it was Y1K, they thought that Jesus was coming back and everything was going to happen and revelation was going to come true, and it didn't happen. And there was probably more disappointment then than there was on uh, in 2000 when Y2K didn't, didn't actually take place. One of the uh, major figures at that time who lived from 1135 to 1202, so that would be in the 12th century, was a man by the name of Joachim of Fiori, who was an early exponent of a post-millennial scheme, and he tried to present sort of a periodization of history based on the Trinity. So he said the, in the Old Testament, the first age is the age of the Father. When mankind lived under the uh, Old Testament, the second age is the age of the Son, the period of grace that was covered in the New Testament, and then now the third age is the age of the Holy Spirit, which he said began in his lifetime around 1260. And so and then, and during that age, all the world would be converted, and then Jesus would come back. So he's got kind of a rudimentary post-mill system. The real father of post-millennialism was a Anglican clergyman by the name of Daniel uh, Whitby, who lived from 1638 until 1726, so the end of the 1600s, early 1700s, and he wrote quite a large number of books, one of which called a treatise of, on the true millennium, and he taught that after the world would be was converted, then the Jews would be restored to the land. And you had a lot of post-mills in the 1700s and even early 1800s who were very pro-Israel, uh, Whitby was very pro-Israel and believed in a future restoration of the Jews to the land. And so a lot of the theologians and pastors that were part of British restorationism in the 1700s were post-millennialism up into the early uh, 19th century. But then as uh, as an emphasis on a literal interpretation became uh, more consistent in the 19th century, 
Anglican clergy shifted away from post-mill and amillennialism to premillennialism, and one uh, Anglican theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle commented that probably half the Anglican clergy, half the English clergy in the 19th century were premillennial. And, and of course, all of them would be very pro-Israel and very pro-Jewish. So they, they were post-mill, but they were pro-Jewish, whereas the modern iteration of post-millennialism is very much out of a, of a different um, covenant theological strand, and they are not as pro-Israel and as, as pro-Jewish as, as, the, as Whitby and those in the 19th century. So now we come to premillennialism, and this is a chart showing premillennialism. We are now living in the church age, we believe sometime near the end of the church age, and the, tribu- the rapture will occur, then the tribulation takes place. This ends with the second coming of Christ, which precedes the millennial kingdom, and then that ends with the great white throne. So the first resurrection is the resurrection of, of the dead, uh, Old Testament saints that occurs and the dead tribulation saints. The first resurrection actually comes in, in uh, two stages. One occurs with the rapture of the church. The rest of it occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Then we have the millennium and then the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the dead unbelievers at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom and the great white throne judgment. So this is the, the picture of these three different uh, approaches to to the millennium. So what do pre-mills believe? Well, first of all, pre-mills believe that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament covenants and promises to Israel in the Old Testament require an earthly kingdom, a physical, earthly, geopolitical kingdom. They believe also that the millennium is the last of the ages in time. The millennial kingdom will end with the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth, and there's a creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and we go into eternity. The messianic kingdom is literal and forever. It has two stages. Stage one is the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and then there's the judgment, and then we go into stage two, which is on into eternity. So under the third point here, eternity will not come in until the millennium is complete, according to passages such as Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, 2 Peter 3, 13, and Revelation 21, 1. So the eternity does not come in until after the great white throne judgment. And fourth, The millennium will be characterized by the binding of Satan and the severe limitation of sin. There will be a rigorous government that will impose harsh penalties on criminality and sin in that that arena. It will be a righteous rule upon the earth, and it's characterized in Scripture in several places that the Lord Jesus Christ rules with a rod of iron. And so this isn't going to be some sweet little liberal Sunday school Jesus who's patting everybody on the head. It will be a very strong, righteous rule during the millennial kingdom. Uh, Fifth, Revelation 19 to 21 must be interpreted sequentially, that, that these events take place one after the other. It's not just talking about 
Uh, these are not just presented as random snapshots, but there is an order of events. First of all, Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19. That comes first. Remember, there weren't any chapter divisions in the Greek, Greek text. Following Christ's return, then Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Third, saints are resurrected at that time. Tribulation saints are resurrected to reign with Christ for the thousand years. Tribulation saints and Old Testament saints. They will be resurrected. Remember, church-age saints are already resurrected at the rapture before the tribulation. Fourth, Satan is released at the end of the thousand years or near the end of the thousand years, and he will lead a final revolt against God in what is called the Gog and Magog Revolution. So this is different from the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion of Gog and Magog into Israel. Those are two different, two different things. Then fifth, the devil is then cast into the lake of fire. The devil and the demons are cast into the lake of fire in chapter uh, 20 verses 7 through 10. And then six, the unbelievers of all time will be resurrected to stand at the great white throne judgment. God will rain down fire and brimstone and completely destroy the, the this uh, army that Satan raises at the end of the millennial kingdom, and they are just going to be incinerated, instantly vaporized by God at the end of the millennial kingdom. So then all unbelievers are resurrected, and we have the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11 to 5. Following that, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when you look at this literally... And you look at the fact that there's an order of events here that is logical, then it helps to recognize that this is talking about a future literal kingdom that will be upon the earth. It's not something that's happening now. The next thing that we see that takes place, all that had to do with the uh, point E, which had to do with the order of events, Back to point F, none of the variations of amillennialism or postmillennialism can adequately account for the sequence of these events. They, they so allegorize or spiritualize what the scripture says that that, those, that sequence of events is not explainable by them. And then finally in this, this overview uh, or in this summary, the premillennial position puts the literal return and reign of Christ with, within human history, and it's visible to the world. This is a demonstration of God's grace and God's judgment. So we're not merely believing in some just sort of uh, general spiritual victory near the end, but it's a belief that God will, genu- will, will specifically and genuinely intervene in the course of the world to bring about justice and peace, that God isn't just awesome where in heavens. And that is important to realize as believers because we live in a postmodern world that as a result of the influence of modernism, which denies the uh, uh, denies uh, a revelation and authoritative revelation, they have so created a division between the so-called religious or spiritual and the everyday here and now that the religious isn't supposed to affect or impact uh, the, the, the physical and the real. 
In other words, religion, what you believe on Sunday morning, should have nothing to do with your politics or your economics or how you vote in the voting booth, and those things need to be kept separately. And if you pay attention to what is being said in this debate over this this hero ordinance and the uh, referendum and the petitions, it's very clear that that's how the mayor understands this situation. They come along, they're asking for 16 different types of communication. They took one out. They said, we don't want sermons. And as I pointed out Sunday morning, the term sermon is not does not have a technical legal definition. The term speech does not have a technical legal definition. These are not terms that are distinguishable. So when they ask for any kind of verbal communication with the congregation, how is that diff- how is that distinguishable from a speech or a sermon? And so by saying, well, we took the word sermon out because sermon has to do with spiritual things, but we just want to know about their speeches and the kind of instruction they gave uh, to the congregation. It's just smoke and mirrors. It's a head fake for people who, who don't know very much and can th- cannot think very clearly. And trust me, the mayor knows exactly what she is saying. The, she, she is not a dummy. I mean, this disrespect for the mayor that I hear that, that, oh, well, she really didn't see those subpoenas and she doesn't understand the significance. I mean, if I were her, I'd want to slap him silly, except they're trying to help her. But the reality is, is that, is that she knows exactly what's been going on because they're engaged in a fishing expedition and lawyers cannot use subpoenas to fish for any kind of information they want. They're restricted by that. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays itself out. But what we see here is the God of the Bible is is involved. He is integrally involved in every aspect of our lives. He's concerned about how we spend our money. He's con- He invented economics. He's concerned about how we sing, what we sing. He's concerned about food. He's concerned about every detail in life. He's concerned about our relationship. He's concerned about politics. He's concerned about all of these things. And there's information about all these things that are in the Word of God. He's not just off somewhere unengaged with what's going on in human history. He may not be directly revealing himself in this church age, but he's nevertheless just as involved. So we see that he will eventually be involved at the end of the millennial kingdom and bring uh, judgment to bear. So with that, let's have an overview of the kingdom of this millennial or messianic kingdom. Uh, first of all, we need to look at a couple of different terms. When we talk about it, talk about it as a kingdom, it emphasizes Jesus' reign as king. There is a rule, there is a domain, and there is someone in charge who is considered a king. And that's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The term millennium emphasizes the length of the kingdom. So let's just break it down in terms of the different categories that we've had. Uh, I think I've got eight or nine different categories here related to how we distinguish a dispensation. First of all, there is usually a, a steward, someone who, or someone or a group that is responsible for God's administration. Uh, God will administer the, the, uh, uh, the age on the earth through that individual or that group. 
So the person through whom the Lord, uh, through whom God will administer the kingdom is Jesus Christ as the greater son of David who will rule over the earth. He has sort of a dual aspect to his rule. One is he rules over the earth, and the second is he rules over, over Israel and over Jerusalem. The term kingdom emphasizes his reign as king and fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David that David's descendant would rule over Israel forever and ever. Third thing that we see is the responsibility. The responsibility of the believer, the earthly believers during the millennial kingdom, is to the kingdom, to the king and his laws. Now, the, the law during the kingdom is not the same as the Old Testament law. That was related to uh, the Levitical priesthood. And it's going to be different in the millennial kingdom. It's not the same. There will be some similarities, but there are some specific differences. So there's a responsibility to obey the king and to obey his laws. And so the basic test in the millennial kingdom will relate to accepting Jesus as Messiah. Remember, those who survive the, the tribulation as believers will enter into the millennial kingdom with mortal bodies. And they will marry and they will procreate and their children will inherit sin natures. Now, everything else is going to have the curse rolled back, but their nasty little sin natures are just going to be as bad as yours and mine. So not all of their children are guaranteed to be believers. There will be many who will be unbelievers. And it is it seems from the language, it's difficult to understand, but it does seem for the language in the prophets that no Jew will reject Jesus as their messianic ruler and as their savior in the same way that no Jew rejected God's provision for their deliverance under the 10th plague in Egypt. From all of the information we have biblically and uh, extra biblically, no Jew uh, lost his life during that 10th plague because they all believed. Just because they all believe doesn't mean God makes them believe. It's not a volitional violation. It's that they all are going to respond. Whereas in this dispensation and in the Old Testament dispensation, a lot of our Jews were characterized in the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, as being stiff-necked and rebellious. And apparently that aspect of their culture is going to pretty much end with the Battle of Armageddon and not going to be a characteristic in the future. Now, I can't explain how that works. I can just tell you that's what the Scripture says. So all the new humans that are born are going to have sin natures, and they're going to need to be saved. The failure is that there's going to be a minority. When I say that, it's going to be a large minority. 49.9% is a minority, right? So we don't know how large that minority is, but it will be a huge number, according to Revelation chapter 20, that will be seduced by Satan into a rebellion, and uh, they will follow him when he's freed at the end of that thousand years. They will follow him in a rebellion against God. It shows that the problem isn't the culture. The problem isn't uh, the the in education or economy or any of these other things we blame now. Everybody says, well, if we would just, if everybody would just quit smoking, we'd all be healthy. If we got rid of slavery, 
then we would have a perfect environment. If women got the vote, we'd have perfect environment. No, it still doesn't work. Okay, if everybody just quit drinking and we got rid of demon rum, then everything would be great. And, and that's what motivated progressivism. It's, it's utopianism. If we can just clean up society, if we can just have a perfect education system, if everybody could just vote, if, if everybody could just run across the border of the Rio Grande and come into the United States, then, then we're going to have a utopia. It's, those aren't the problems. The problem is sin. The problem's rebellion against God. So what we see is that through the thousand years of perfect government, perfect environment, there won't be any hunger, any plagues, illness, war, famine, yet the sin nature still revolts against God because People choose to reject God. And then the sixth characteristic is that grace will be displayed in that all of God's covenant promises to Israel will be fulfilled. The Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. The new covenant will be fulfilled. The land covenant will be fulfilled. All of these covenants will be fulfilled, and it will be a time of unprecedented prosperity and peace and welfare on the whole planet because we have a righteous government and a righteous ruler. Seventh thing that we see is that there's a judgment factor that those who reject the gospel will be judged. So this lays out the parameters and the characteristics of the of the uh, millennial kingdom. Now, one thing I would add is point eight, which I didn't put on a slide, and that is how does this fit with the angelic conflict? In the angelic conflict, it, it helps resolve the angelic conflict because it demonstrates that the major issue is volition. This was Satan's primary sin, was he chose to go against God, and he couldn't blame it on anything else. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was their volition. They couldn't blame it on anything else, and of course they tried. They, uh, Eve said, well, it was... It was the, uh, the serpent. Adam said it was the woman. They all tried to blame, some, blame something else. And what is demonstrated in the millennial kingdom is it's man's problem. It's a volitional issue, and that's the basic, basic issue. So this brings the angelic conflict to its final resolution. Now, next time when we come back, we're going to continue talking about uh, the background for the, for the um a millennial kingdom because it's directly related to understanding all of those covenants before. So we'll tie that together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this, this evening to see your plan and purposes, how things are going to resolve themselves and how it's only in the millennial kingdom that all of those promises, everything that's stated and promised and prophesied in the Old Testament is finally brought together, tied together, and your plan and purposes for history are finally resolved. Father, we pray that we might never forget that the major issue in history is volition and the focal point should be the cross, that Christ died for our sins so that we could have everlasting life only by believing in him and him alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.